and welcome to the eighth episode of Digest Cast, a podcast dedicated to the belief that big things come in small packages. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. Together, we are known as the Pied Pipers of the Man Children, ladies and gentlemen, and we are proud members of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Rob, buddy, how you doing? We're doing another Digest cast already? That's kind of strange, isn't it? <laughs> Normally, there's like six months in between these things, right? Yeah. <laughs> and this is going to be less than a month. I know. I know. Well, you know, it's uh, sometimes you just got to dive in. Like right now, I'm on a binge where I just can't get enough of the Digest. You know, it's we, we've talked about these things, these beloved pocket-sized treasures from the bygone era of the 70s and 80s and how much we love them. And I got excited about doing one of these. And actually, it came from one of the people that wrote in. So j- just to tell you guys at home what we're doing today here, we are are doing a Veterans Day special. And uh, we're going to be talking about a specific digest that deals with war comics. And uh, now for, for you foreign listeners, because I know we actually, on this show specifically, we have some folks in foreign countries, uh, you might be wondering, what is Veterans Day? Well, here in the United States, it's a public holiday held on the anniversary of the end of World War I, which happens to be November 11th, and it's to honor U.S. veterans and victims of all wars. And uh, in, in 1954, Veterans Day actually replaced the previous holiday, which was called Armistice, Armistice Day. Apparently that's easier to spell than say. Look, we all know that right now, especially right now, we live in a very politically divided, politically charged country at the moment. It's, it's not fun for anyone, even more so right around election time. However, I feel that we can all come together here in thanking the men and women of the United States Armed Forces who put their lives on the line every day, risking their necks to protect us, to protect our country and our freedoms. So this episode... Um, it is, it's a small, silly little way for us to pay tribute. So to all the veterans out there, you have our respect and our appreciation, and thank you very much. Absolutely, and special dedication to Petty Officer Second Class John Kelly, who served in the United States Navy from 1952 to 1956. Aw, that's wonderful. I didn't know that. Oh, man. Um, well, we thought the fun way, again, to celebrate Veterans Day would be doing a digest cast specifically about Sergeant Rock, because there's a few Sergeant Rock digests. And this was inspired by, uh, in the comments, last episode we covered, uh, there was a comment from Luke Giaconetti, who's a buddy of old buddy of ours. And he was excited because he was at the time reading a Sergeant Rock digest. Now, unfortunately, uh, I can't, we can't cover the one that he was specifically reading because, quite frankly, I don't own it. But I can make that happen sooner or later. So uh, instead, we are covering a Sergeant Rock digest. Uh, it's going to be Sergeant Rock's prize battle tales. And it's DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number seven. Very excited to be doing this. And it's got some awesome, awesome stories of the U.S. Armed Forces. And interestingly enough, it's even got a story of a uh, foreign military in here as well. Now, if you are thinking about reading these digests or reading other war comics right now, a great thing you can do on the social media, there is a hashtag. Uh, it's a hashtag War Comics Month. War Comics Month. Because in November, a lot of folks are out there trying to read war comics, just again, sort of focused on the veterans. So please use that hashtag to discuss your favorite war comics, new and old, out there on the Twitters and the Facebooks. That would be awesome. And Luke Giaconetti has been out there promoting that hashtag as well. Very cool. So, uh, you know what? Why don't we just get going here? Oh, let, let's do our In Stock Trades uh, recommendation. Folks, this episode of the Digest Cast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, buddy? 
Um, instead of uh, recommending a DC War comic, I'm moving one letter down the scale and doing an EC War comic, <laughs> which is EC Archives Two-Fisted Tales, hardcover, volume one. Everybody knows these are some of the greatest war comics ever done, uh, shepherded by the great legendary Harvey Kurtzman, featuring uh, art by uh, Wally Wood, Johnny Craig, Jack Davis, Al Feldstein, John Severin, and more. Jeez. What a lineup that is. Wow. Yeah, unbelievable. This is published by Dark Horse. It collects Two-Fisted Tales numbers 18 through 23. It's normally $49.99 for 216 glorious color pages, but in stock trades price is $28.99. That is 42% off. If you have never read any of these Two-Fisted Tales comics, give these a try. They are startlingly beautiful in their own, you know, grim way because they're, they're war stories. I mean, Harvey Kurtzman wasn't pulling any punches. And this is the same guy that brought you Mad Magazine. And here he is doing war comics. But So give this a try. Two Vista Tales, Volume 1. You know, I wonder if there's something, if someone had, were to do the research about war comics attracting just amazingly talented artists. Uh, because, you know, the names you just rattled off, some names I'm about to rattle off, then when we get to the digest, no more names are going to rattle off. There's some amazing folks tied on these things. So my pick is a, is a DC one. It's actually GI Combat, Trade Paperback Volume 1, The War That Time Forgot. Now, this is from the New 52 era. Um, so it, it, forgive me, it, this the in-stock trade is bench isn't as deep as I would like it to be at this moment. So uh, the stuff I want to pick is not out there. So but this is a good one, folks. Uh, again, GI Combat Trade Paperback, The War of the Time Forgot. It got it has, obviously, um, the War Time Forgot means you've got Dinosaur Island, which is also in this digest. You've got The Unknown Soldier. You've got The Haunted Tank. And these are some fun, fun comics. It collects GI Combat 0 through 7. Now, a lot of people don't remember that when the New 52 launched, they tried to touch on a lot of different genres, even genres that have been forgotten, like war comics. And this is one of the more successful ones. I enjoyed this series myself. I actually picked it up. It's written by Justin Gray and some other folks. Artist by uh, Arts got Ariel. I can never say this person's name. Olivetti. I think and, that's right. And Howard Chaikin and Brett Booth. I mean, come on. Incredibly talented folks. Page count, 240 pages, full color, normally retails for $19.99. You get it for 42% off right now, so only $11.59. Heck, that's like three comics, right? You know, nowadays in modern day prices. So in the, you get eight <laughs> issues of awesome old war tales. Uh, so definitely check this in. Old being the old topics, again, of, you know, uh, Dinosaur Island and Unknown Soldier and all and Haunted Tanks. Just so much fun. So for these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit In Stock Trades. Com. Now, I got myself a little lost in the narrative there because there, I did want to mention there was a couple of trades I was actually looking for I couldn't find out there. Uh, two, two of my favorite showcases. Like, you ever buy any of these showcase presents, like the, the phone book size the, trade paperbacks? Oh, yeah. I have a couple of them. Yeah, I've got far too many because they take up a lot of shelf space. Um, I've got, like, I don't know, 15, 20 of these things. And I've read a lot of them. Some I have and some I haven't. But two of my absolute favorite ones I've ever read were The War That Time Forgot which is an absolute hoot. It is just story after story after story about military guys fighting dinosaurs. And while you'd think that formula would get old and tired, it doesn't. It never, ever gets tired. It's awesome. And then the other one I have is Enemy Ace, which is, wow, that is just a totally intense, fantastic read. Two awesome ones. So if you ever get a chance, if you ever stumble across those Showcase Presents, both of them work really, really well in black and white. Can't recommend them enough. So much fun. All right, so this digest was my pick. Uh, last episode, I, I was a little hesitant on announcing 
exciting what we were going to cover because I was afraid that Rob and I wouldn't be able to pull it off, getting it out in time for Veterans Day. So glad this is happening. So yes, my pick is DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number seven, specifically subtitled uh, Sergeant Rock's Prize Battle Tales. Cover dated March 1981. Release date is December 11th, 1980. A little Christmas present there for you. Digest editor is, is this for real? Karen, Karen Berger. It really is yes. Karen Berger. Mm-hmm. Future of Vertigo in my hands. It'll pocket size. Amazing. Uh, only 95 cents and you get 100 pages. Now, it's a yellow wraparound cover. On the front, it's got, uh, again, this nice little logo, Sergeant Rock's Prize Battle Tales. He's even got his little sergeant, you know, um, what do you call rank insignia up there. And then it's, it's a lot of yellow, but then in red surprint in the back, you get Covers, or at least maybe splash pages from some of the pages from, from the, some of the stories inside. You get the Sergeant Rock one. You get Unknown Soldier, Haunted Tank, War the Time Forgot, and in the back you get a rundown of all the stories inside. And he tells you, okay, six combat classics, powerful combat classics by Joe Kubert, Bob Kaniger, Alex Toth, Archie Goodwin, David McAlini, Russ Heath, and Jerry Tallock. Oh my gosh! Seriously, that's amazing. What a great bench! Wow. Yeah, that's another amazing lineup. And it said the cover, I got to wonder, why are these Nazis shooting up these Who's Who pages? It's very frustrating. <laughs> Rob's taking it personally. Well, you're right. It's Serpent and a bunch of yellow around the border, isn't it? <laughs> it's a really great cover uh, by Joe Kubert of, of, of Rock escaping uh, all these bullets as they're flying. It's, uh, again, yellow. The bright yellow would not be a color you would necessarily think to use for a a war comic cover, but it really works. It, it Yellow is the color of tension, and it feels that way. This is a very tense cover because Rock is, uh, again, avoiding uh, sh- certain death uh, here, but it said it's a really terrific cover. And Shag, are you like me? I keep inserting the word winning in this title. I keep calling it Sergeant Rock's prize winning battle tales because I, I, it's, it's not. When I, when I wrote the post for the website, I kept sticking the word winning. I'm like, there's no winning in this title. It's just prize battle tale. Well, you know, it, you know, in the modern sense, this comic is totally winning, though. So, I mean, to be fair. Yes. But I'm, thank you for pointing out that Rock was on the cover. I'm talking about the serpent and the yellow and everything. I didn't bother to mention Rock was on the cover, so I'm really glad you pointed that out. <laughs> yeah, it's a be- beautiful cover. Yeah, really, really exceptionally well done. All right, uh, 100 explosive pages of all-out action. Our first story <laughs> features Sergeant Rock in the Men of Easy Company. Rob, you want to cover this one? Yes, the uh, story is called Four Faces of Sergeant Rock. It's written by Robert Kaniger, artist by Joe Kubert. Hey, I went to his school. Did I ever tell you that? No, I didn't it's re- know <laughs> It's reprinted from <laughs> – never gets old. It's reprinted from Our Army at War, number 127, which was uh, 1963. The members of Easy Company, after 31 days straight on the line, remark how little it seems to show on their commander's face, Sergeant Rock. They then start to share stories about, on rare, equation, on rare occasions, how they have seen some emotions show up on their commander's face. One story involves the time Rock and his fellow Easy Company soldiers were trapped on a beach, unable to move lest they be cut down. As the water rose around Rock, he began to panic over the thought of being drowned. Still, Rock managed to save the day thanks to a well-aimed grenade. Another story involves a young recruit named Dash who was a sprinter in school and how his obsession to be the fastest led him to take huge risks on the front line. After Rock rescues the kid, everyone remembers the look of admiration on his face for the kid's bravery. A third instance is when Rock helped rescue a comely French resistance fighter. And a fourth involves when a little lost dog that Rock took took a shining to got gunned down by a Nazi plane with a skull and crossbones on its side. Rock vows to find the pilot and kill him. Later, 
Rock and Easy see that very plane, and Rock takes it upon himself to bring it down. As the plane is reduced to a smoldering ruin, Easy Company is shocked to see a single tear fall from their commander's face as he solemnly states, See, I told you I'd keep my promise. Mm. Man. So this one, the the thing that freaks me out the most in this one is when they're laying on the beach, right? And they, they're paralyzed from the shell shock, basically, is what it is. The explosions of the bombs going off, they're just paralyzed. They can't move. And it says they're on this beach for hours. Yep. And the tide is rolling in, and Rock's body is just being rocked back and forth by the waves lapping over him. I mean, that sense of slowly drowning was like the tension. Maybe it's just the way it was illustrated and Cuber did it, but... God, it was freaking me out. Like I found myself holding my breath. I was reading that section. I don't know. Is it just me or did you feel that as well? No, I think it's terrifically, it's beautifully paced. I mean, again, it's Joe Kubert, man. The guy knew the hell, the hell he was doing. And uh, from what I remember, I think this was probably Joe's favorite assignment of all the things he did was mm-hmm. Rock. He just loved this so much. Uh, I'm amazed of how much they pack into just like 20 pages, this story. I mean, it's four different locations, four different scenes, actually five different scenes because you've got sort of the wraparound. But yeah, the, the scenes of the water rising up over Rock's face to, to slowly, I've always thought like to me the worst kind of like death would be like to like slowly know what's happening to you uh, as opposed to quickly, you know? I mean, like when I kill you, Shag, it'll be very quick. It's oh, really? Like, oh, I expect it agonizing, yeah. like, like no, gut, oh, no, gut no, shot no. kind of thing. No, I'll walk up behind you and just hit you with a rock or something. Oh, okay. But, uh, but, but no, I mean, I think this is – everything is terrifically paced. Um, the coloring is beautiful. I love the bright magenta of the Mademoiselle's uh, shirt that she's on. I love I love uh, that she's – I like that she's kind of like a, uh, um, a resistance fighter. Like at one point she grabs a rifle and just starts firing and she's mm-hmm. like, Good the Lord! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love all that. I love the final shot of uh, – Rock downing the plane, the Nazi plane all by himself, and it, it's all in reds and yellows, and basically just Rock and the Easy Company in a silhouette, and it looks like like the flames of hell are, are swallowing that Nazi. And of course, the whole idea is that you know Rock doesn't get that upset when it's involving people, but it's involving a little dog. That's what really gets to him, and that that, that gets to me because that's right. how probably I would feel when you watch the panel of the poor dog getting shot down. You're like, oh my god, it's just. Just brutal. So it's 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 a very it's a really really well done story. And, and really, the framing uh, the framing idea here is, is is the four different as they said the four different faces. So the first one was let's see. Um, they wanted to say, did you ever see Rock get scared? And that's the one where he's drowning, right? And then the, right. Ne- the next one was, did you ever see Rock lose his cool? And that's the one where the the runner kid got uh, that was a weird one where the kid got gunned down, right? Or, or the kid no he doesn't get gunned sorry, down. He sprinted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got injured. Rock picks him up, and then Rock just walks directly at the Gatling gun, basically, and never – he doesn't veer. He doesn't swerve. He, doesn't, he just walks straight at it, and just it's almost like a miracle. They can't hit him. So creepy. So that's Rock losing his cool. Then the other one was um, – Kind of admiration for the girl because they think they, you know, you would think she's like a shrinking violet, but then she's not. That's right. But she's she's so she's so enamored that Rock helped her out, and she plants a big kiss on his cheek. There uh, it is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's the surprise. Yeah. Have you ever seen Rock be surprised? Yep. And the last one, of course, did you ever see Rock cry? Yeah. So really great. I mean, powerful story. And uh, I mean, you really feel it too. Like when it starts off, and Rock is had. Now it's interesting. the framing sequence says it had been 42 days of fighting. And then when you read it, the story, it's actually 30, what, 31 days of fighting. 31, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, he looks rough when the, when the story starts out, man. And as he gets by, as he starts cleaning himself, so he's shaving throughout the, whole, throughout the whole story. So, anyway, I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was 
great. And um, I think for me, like I hadn't, I didn't really read any Sergeant Rock ever um, for um, until we started doing Digest Cast. I think I did um, when we did one of those best of. Of the oh, year. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a Sergeant Rock story in there, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. And that sort of sparked my excitement for Sergeant Rock stories, and I think this was a great one. Yeah, it's terrific. It's, 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 I, I, I always really liked this character. This was – growing up, Sergeant Rock was not a comic that appeared on newsstands very much. Like it just wasn't distributed all that well. Like we ended up it up when I could find it because it felt like it was rare. You know, I was like, oh, <clears> Sergeant Rock, I don't get to see that that much. So I always liked it when I saw it. And, and there's something to be said for the skill that all these guys brought to it because Sergeant Rock is just a guy. You know what I mean? Like there's no – like, you know, he's just a brave – So they're just war stories. There's no great – I think if they did them nowadays, it would have to be like a hook. You know, it's like, oh, he's a this. He's got some special thing. No, he's just a – him and the Easy Company are just a really – Tough bunch of guys serving in World War II. All right. Now you're going to make me tell you a story. Uh, so they did do a rock modern-day story to some extent, and it was really interesting. Keith Giffen put did a 12-issue series about the Suicide Squad. This is after Ostrander's run was over. And they put together a new side, Suicide Squad of supervillains, right? And Rock was in charge of he was like an older guy now he's like a general and he was in charge of the suicide squad and it was like a halfway mix between suicide squad and justice league international so it was half like espionage half funny it was a really strange mix and it didn't take with the public but once i realized what it was i fell in love with the book in fact killer frost was in it from firestorm and it was a great book and rock was just he was really vicious and, the, and tough on the on the criminals and everything and you get to the very last issue and the whole thing falls apart the agency collapses and they go to talk to uh, Sergeant Rock about it, and his his office or his room, or whatever, has been completely abandoned, and there's just a rubber mask on the ground. It was never Rock to begin with, which was just like so, – because everyone was like, what? You know, the guy takes with the mystique of Rock still being alive after World War II. And then just the, the, for the final issue, you find out it was never Rock. That was just a great way to handle it. I thought that was fantastic. And I just pulled ah, it for weird. everybody. Okay. Every, <laughs> um, I should mention just as a little trivia, the, the title that this story appeared in, Our Army of War, eventually became Sergeant Rock. They changed the title of it mm. over to Sergeant Rock midway through. That's how, that's how the Sergeant Rock comic, I think, lasted into like the 400s or something. Yeah, I think his, his the was number. the um, longest running – isn't yep. he the longest running war comic character of all time, I think? Yeah, it went into like uh, the late 80s, yeah. Sergeant Rock title. Yep. Cool. All right. Why don't we get to the next one? All right, next up is Burma Sky by Archie Goodwin and Alex Toth. Yes, that's an unbeatable duo. Uh, That's reprinted from Our Fighting Forces, number 146, 1973. The planes of Imperial Japan ruled the Orient in the early months of 1942, their influence stretching all the way to Pearl Harbor. Now, over Rangoon, they face a new foe, the brave squadron of pilots known as the Flying Tigers. The story is narrated by a transport pilot who was transferred to the Tigers and was teamed with the legendary pilot Pappy Coburn. Pappy lied about his age to get into World War I, but just as he was about to go on his first dawn patrol, the armistice was signed. Coburn has been in the Air Corps ever since, but bemoans how mechanized war has become. Later, Rangoon falls to the Axis powers, and the Allies move up north to try and keep the last piece of the Burma Road in Allied hands. Left behind by the British, by the British is a single World War I-style biplane, a Gloucester Gladiator. When the Japanese attack, Coburn climbs into the old plane and uses his skill to lure the sole remaining Japanese Zero away from the rest of his squad. For one brief moment, Coburn has found the war he missed the last time around. Mm. That's, that's it for Burma Sky. Very brief story. It's only seven pages. Um, but it's, it's Alex Toth drawing 
uh, planes, which was like Alex Toast's favorite thing in the world. Oh, really? So, oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Oh, okay. yeah. I love this stuff. And so, as you might imagine, the story is absolutely fantastic. Um, in fact, if you, you search it online, there's a site I found that I think it's called Bristol Board, and it has the original art pages by Alex Toth in black and white. Oh, uh, wow. Thing, so you can see them in black and white. And then I run out of superlatives for Alex Toth at this point. I mean, I've, I've <laughs> waxed, his, waxed his plane so many times. Um, but, I mean, this thing is just so beautifully told, and it, it's, um, it's very dialogue-heavy. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's tons of balloons, but Alex Toth lettered his own work, and he made it. He made it work. It looks absolutely stunning. I, before you go any further, I got to talk about the lettering because this thing, this is just a total trip. Because he did these really neat effects where, like, you know, um, he gave it, it's almost like everything got logos. Like Flying Tigers has their own yep. little logo, and then yep. later on, the discussion is like, you know, they say like boxers using both fists. He said punch and counter punch. You know, and then he says you know, something later, giving chase now, we got out. And a lot of stuff just has these logo-like designs. And then, you know, a lot of onomatopoeia, is that what you say when it's uh, the sound effect? You know, corral and, and where they're shooting people down and zeros and, and people's language too. Like, Pappy, what about you? And it's large, bold, giant letters and they're in curves. It's so much fun. The lettering alone is worth it. Is absolutely worth it just to see that. Now, I will tell you, this one is a little rough at the reduced size. I had to break oh, out the yeah. readers. I had to break out the readers for this one. I was like, it's very dense. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's only seven pages. I mean, in seven yep. pages, they told this dense story. And it was super fun. And there's also, there's something. I don't know, like this bygone magic of biplanes, you know, biplane, especially seeing a biplane in World War II was really cool. Like, have you ever been to an air show in real life? Uh, when I was a kid, yeah. Okay. So it, it, they probably had a biplane there. They usually do at these air shows. And they are just so magical to watch. It's almost like watching a dragonfly. They look so light in the way they float on the wind and the way they can be maneuvered differently than a, than a faster plane. It, they're just gorgeous. So seeing the and, – and even talks about that, about the maneuverability of the biplane versus the modern-day planes and how he used that to his advantage. And it's just – I don't know. It, it really, This one spoke to me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. I love the ending. I mean, it, it, it ends on a kind of uh, not an explosive moment because it really ends with, with Pappy Coburn dragging the Japanese Zero out into the horizon. And it basically says that they just fade away into nothing. Right. And so the rest of the squad knows that he's going to go out there and drag this, this last fighter pilot way out into the ocean and kill him. And they'll probably die in the attempt. But that's it. like it just sort of like they just sort of fade into nothing as opposed to like some big explosion. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the lettering because, uh, yeah, I think the lettering is great. It's kind of it's Alex Toth a couple ahead, a couple of a couple many years ahead of the, the, the curve where you think about probably by the 80s. I think you even mentioned it in the last episode of JLI where um, they started doing, you know, if they wanted to suggest somebody was whispering, they would do like a giant balloon but have tiny lettering mm, okay. inside the balloon. It's it's conveying the sound of the lettering by the size of the, mm. con- conveying the sounds of the words by different size of the lettering. And so you're talking about that, that one scene where um, – he says, Pappy, what about you? And he's like, now get down. And it's extra large because he's yelling. Yep. You know, so it's, it's you know, that's Toth doing that stuff kind of, I think, ahead of everybody else. And so he said, I mean, he, 
we, we, we've talked about this in other episodes. He did very little superhero work because he just was not a superhero guy. Right. But he loved horror. He loved war. He loved doing romance comics. I mean, Zorro. we talked about Alex. Oh, yeah, we, Zorro. We had all that superhero, of course. But that's really more adventure than superhero. Yeah, that's, that's high adventure. That's not yeah. superhero. Um, but we talked about Toth just the very last episode of Digest Cast. And so it's like it was like if, if DC had other genres to do, Toth would do them. But, if, you know, do Superman? No. But he'll do this biplane story. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's written by Archie Goodwin, who's one of the best people ever to do it. So it's like a, it's a mini classic, this Burma Sky story. Super fun. Love it. Um, well worth being in the collection, too. And, and yep. you know, that's something else. I guess I'm so used to doing so many digests that are, like, stuff from that year. It's sort of surprising to, to me to see how widely spread these issues are from. Like, the one I'm about to cover is from 1967. I mean, wow, that's just fantastic. All right, let's go ahead and get into the next one, actually. So, next one is The Haunted Tank. The issue, the story was called Target of Terror. It's 14 pages. Written by Robert Kaniger, who wrote all, most of the stories in this book, to be quite frankly. Uh, art is Russ Heath. It's reprinted from G.I. Combat number 123 from 1967. Now, I will freely admit, I did crib some bits and pieces of my recap from Mike's Amazing World of Comics because I was looking up dates and publications and all that, and I saw he had recaps. I'm like, well, I'm okay, I'll steal a little bit. <laughs> so, not all of it, but pieces. So, All right, it's France during World War II, and Lieutenant Jeb Stewart receives orders to meet up with Mademoiselle Marie for a secret mission. So secret that no one but Marie actually knows what the mission's about. Now, en route, the haunted tank engages in a dangerous battle with a Nazi tank upon a wooden bridge. And the haunted tank prevails, leaving the bridge itself in ruins. And while detouring around the demolished bridge, Jeb is visited by the ghost of the 19th century Confederate general, Jeb Stewart, the ghost who haunts the Stewart tank. That's why it's called Haunted Tank, folks. Keep up, please. Anyway, the ghost warns the modern-day Jeb that the mission will be, quote, veiled in smoke to all, even its founder. Jeb doesn't understand what that's about because the ghost, you know, is, is making it all, you know, hard to – he doesn't want to come right out and tell him. So eventually the haunted tank arrives at Marie's location and takes out an enemy tank that has her pinned down. A lot of tanks battles in this one. Uh, Marie's still alive, um, but now she is suffering from shell shock and can't remember the purpose of her top secret mission, which explains why the ghost warning was all about being things being veiled in smoke. The only thing Marie remembers is that the mission is vital and it involves high explosives. So Jeb brings Marie aboard the haunted tank to scout the area for the target. And Marie is distraught that she can't recall the mission objectives. And our heroes stumble across an enemy ammo dump and later a tank bridge, and they destroy both targets. But Marie senses that neither of those were the threat she was trying to eliminate. Now, when the haunted tank approaches a dilapidated castle, Marie recalls that that is the target she wants to destroy, though she still can't remember the reason. The tank enters the castle and is quickly attacked. Jeb and Marie find that the castle is a Nazi missile launching site with rockets aimed at London. Now, Jeb and Marie destroy the launch site and escape the castle alive, and Marie then elects to remain behind enemy, line, enemy lines to form a new resistance unit. So, what did you think about this one, buddy? I was, it was a lot of fun. I actually really like Mademoiselle Marie. I mm-hmm. don't like see her a lot. I haven't read a lot of comics with her. I think, first of all, she's got it going on. You yeah. have to say that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but she's a great visual. I think it's fun. I, I, what really drew me to this is, is the artwork. Um, mm-hmm. The great Russ Heath, who just passed away like like two months ago. He lived oh, to be really? Like, oh. I yeah, yeah, yeah. He lived to be like 93 or something. He was uh, wow. friends with uh, David A. Gutierrez. Uh, they talk a lot and stuff. Um, really beautiful work 
just gorgeous. I love the particular panel. Is It's on page 42 of the digest. I think it's page 8 of the story where the Nazis are literally falling out of trees <laughs> attacking. And there's this – it's the second panel of the top where the, the – you've got the, the – it says, it says, and the French guerrilla leader and I fought off the enemy, and they're just throwing the Nazis off of them as they're shooting at them with their machine gun. It's just such a great pay. It looks like a um, a Conan the Barbarian thing, <laughs> except, except it's set in World War II. Uh, no, I thought this was a really solid adventure, and it, I think it ends exactly at the moment I wanted it to end. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it doesn't overstay its welcome. Right at the point where, like, okay, kind of got the, the objective's been been you know reached everything's good we got everything remembers everything we blew up a bunch of nazis and i love that the tank just sort of leaves her by a tree you know she's like oh yes perhaps we'll meet again on another mission and just take off you're like doesn't she need food or anything you want it no, all right we'll just leave her here that's fine well and, and I'm, I'm trying to as we're talking here i'm googling her a bit she had her own strip, it looks like, maybe, in Star Spangled Stories? She did. Okay. She, did. she had her own so, feature, yeah. So she's legitimately a guest star. She didn't just show up at Haunted Tank from time to time. She was literally jumping from story to story. That's really cool. Yeah, this was a War Comics crossover. Uh, there's a couple pages in here that Russ did that I thought were just phenomenal. Um, page 40 of the Digest, where the tank is just rolling away, and, and she's completely upset because she can't remember the mission. And it's this one vertical panel that takes up half the page, and it's just like gray clouds, and it's all it's, it's sort of like a silhouette, but it's powerful. It, it sends the message that you know she's just sad and feeling downtrodden um, and not feeling like she's doing her part. And then it ends kind of similarly on the last page of 48. Again, left-hand side, a silhouette of the tank. And you see the burning castle in the background. And I just think that's really well done. I really like the illustration on that. It really caught my attention. Oh, I love that. His use of silhouettes is terrific. He really knew how to Wow, there's a lot of that. Now that I look yeah. at it. Yeah. Also, saves time. That's true. Now, my friend Rob <laughs> told me that. Yep, artist's favorite thing. And I just love – I guess when I think about World War II, I think more of like a sort of Sergeant Rock infantry sort of thing. But this thing – they fought a lot of tanks in this story. I mean <laughs> I guess if you've got a tank, that's who you're going to fight is another tank. But I mean they, they legitimately battled a bunch of tanks, and uh, I was impressed at how easily they took them out. So I but, guess if you uh, I guess if you accepted a haunted tank uh, job, you must really like drawing tanks because if you don't, this probably was a miserable assignment. <laughs> And the whole idea of being haunted by a Confederate general, what a strange, unique idea. <laughs> no, as a kid, I could never wrap my head around. I was like, because I remember reading it, like the who's who listing. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. It's a tank that, wait, huh? Like, it, just kind of just, it seemed like it was two different concepts smooshed together or something. <laughs> well, so I was reading the Wikipedia page about it last night, trying to figure out if this Jeb Stewart's like the grandson of the other Jeb Stewart. I, in my mind, I thought he was, but I couldn't. I didn't see a reference on Wikipedia because you know that's always factual. But they did say something about like Alexander the the ghost of Alexander the Great is the one who sends Jeb Stewart, the Confederate general, to be like. This is getting too deep. Okay, I, you know what? It's just haunted. I'm good with that. I can go with it's that. It's a haunted tank. Yeah. Okay, let's just roll with it. Why make literally it's a haunted roll tank? Clackety clackety clackety. All right. <laughs> Tell you what, let's move on to the next story here. This is this is. I love the war that time forgot. I mean, legitimately, I don't even know how I first fell in love with it. I don't even remember why I ended up with this digest. I mean, this uh, showcase of it. That's the first time I really remember reading any of it. But it's like dinosaurs versus soldiers. It's just, it just works over and over. I don't care. Like in that showcase, I remember there'd be stories like you know these three acrobat brothers who were like kind of like the flying Graysons who entered the military and now they're on the island doing acrobatics while they fight the dinosaurs. I mean, there's Kanegar always found a new way to tell a story. I love it. 
Anyway, this one is called uh, War of the Time Forgotten, the individual story is The Big House of Monsters. It's 14 pages, written by, oh, Robert Kaminger. Art by Rasith again. Reprinted from Star Spangled War Stories, number 132, from 1967. Now, this recap I actually wrote myself because I wasn't lazy, and I couldn't find one online. So, uh, This story revolves around Jackie, who's a former police officer, and Nick, who's an escaped criminal. Now, in a flashback, we learn that Jackie, the police officer, had captured the crooked Nick and was taking him to the big house, you know, jail. And they were going along via a train ride. The train was derailed by Nick's goons, which allowed Nick to, you know, Nick to escape. Now, at the same time, the criminals planted fake evidence on Jackie, the police officer, which ultimately wrecked his career. Now, fast forward to present, or at least uh, World War II in this case. And both Jackie and Nick are in the army, and both have coincidentally been captured and were being held in the same Japanese prisoner of war camp. They work together to escape the POW camp using a life raft, and strange currents in the ocean bring them to the bring the raft to Dinosaur Island. The two have to work together to survive against attacks from giant lobsters, voracious dinosaurs, and enormous snakes. Throughout the whole experience, Nick the criminal keeps trying to turn the tables and kill Jackie, the former policeman, while Jackie just wants Nick alive so he can bring him back to the States and prove his innocence for the crime he was framed for when he's a policeman. In the end, it's got kind of a sad ending here. In the end, Jackie, the former police officer, is captured and killed by a giant octopus, and Nick stands by and lets this happen. Though, uh, Nick gets his comeuppance when he returns to the island and is surrounded by four deadly dinosaurs. And Nick's final words are, I'm in the big house, a big house of monsters, and I'm starting to serve my sentence now. The joke's on me! As these dinosaurs eat him alive. <laughs> What'd you think of this one? How is this not a movie? <laughs> I was and so I afraid you were going to say I, something I, mean. I, oh, thank goodness. No, oh, no, 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 no. I don't, and I don't mean this particular story, but the, the, the whole concept, the war the time forgot. Right. It's an island of lost monsters. How did, I mean, I, I, you know. Well, it's kinda, it it kind of is if you say King Kong. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah I know. But I mean, but, but, but the World War II angle, too. I mean, it, it's like I could see the, the studio pitch. It's King Kong plus Saber and Private Ryan. You know, I mean, he's got everything. <laughs> I'm sorry, DC. Don't waste your time doing an Aquaman movie. Make War to Time with a War to Time Forgot movie. I love this story because it is just, it's like you think the haunted tank is weird. <laughs> Here's the island. I mean, because it's not even just like they're dinosaurs, which is already you know, crazy, but it's like monsters that never existed. I mean, when they get to the part with a giant crab right. shooting out of the, like, I can hear that Ray Harryhausen, you know, <laughs> music playing out that he didn't do music. You know what I mean? But I mean that it's gruesome. It's so, it's just so much fun. I, I, I don't know. I, I really did enjoy this. I, I read a little bits and pieces here and there, but man, they are so much fun. And it has such a horror movie ending. It does. Which is fantastic. <laughs> Everybody and, dies. <laughs> and I have to point out another piece of great artwork by Russ Heath. The next to the last page, the close-up of the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, I'm, I'm alone now. The, co- the copper's gone. And I'm here with the monsters. And it's got this yellow, harsh lighting on him. That is such a brilliant little inset drawing Man, of a I face. I didn't even it notice is, it, but yeah, I mean, that's, that looks like, oh, looks like something out of a movie. Yeah. That's intense yeah, and lighting the, and everything. Yeah. The reverse, the reverse lighting is magenta. It's beautiful. I, this is just, I don't know how I've said, I've only read a handful of these. I don't know how well this held up as an ongoing feature. I'm telling you, it was awesome. I've read the okay, showcase, right. which is like 60 of these stories over and over. I, and I would think they would get, re- think they would get repetitive, but maybe not. But anyway, this was, Oh, just huge fun. Yeah. 
And I love all the dinosaurs, too, because some of these are clearly supposed to be, like, herbivores. You know, like, even the first one they meet is clearly supposed to be an herbivore, the way the body, but not the way Russ Heath draws it. It's giant fangs, and it is about to eat these guys alive, and it just, it looks terrifying. The fate, like, I'm on page 55, the bottom corner, bottom panel there, and this, and, and the, uh, the dinosaur's got his mouth open. It's just, like, vicious looking, and then you, let's see, you keep going to, you know, page 59 of the digest. Again, probably an herbivore based on the way the the body type is and yet it's got the vicious fangs and it's gonna eat them alive and i just i love it it's so much fun oh, oh i think if i think of russ heath drew, drew a koala bear it would be like a koala that's gonna eat your face or something like <laughs> it is gorgeously illustrated the panel design works the the shadows like you talked about the snake up in the trees because all you see is the silhouette of the guys and their guns and the snake slithering down it's totally creepy uh, and, and the story's even a little bit interesting on – the setup's a little forced, but they both end up in the same POV, POW camp. But the idea of these two guys having to – you know, it's like almost like a, an anti-buddy movie where you've got the criminal and the cop trying to survive together. they got to keep each other alive till the end sort of thing. It was, it's fun. It's super – it's well put together and it's super fun. Yeah, and yes, I love if you, it. If you and I can tell you from experience, the War of the Time Forgot uh, showcase. I, I as I would read them, I, I would I thought the same thing too. I thought it would get repetitive, and I'd read like three stories, and I'd be like, "Well, I can read one more before I go to bed." Sure, it's 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 like an addiction. You don't want to stop. They they don't get old for whatever reason. I can't tell you. Maybe it's Kanegar just kept mixing it up. You know, again, one issue would be about acrobats, the next one would be so total soldiers, and then you get criminals, and he just he always found a way to make it interesting. Yeah, oh, it fly and it flies by. I mean, it, I mean, it's only fourteen pages, it's not long, but I mean, it just it just zips right through. So I can imagine you want to read a bunch. They're like potato chips or something. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah, and you're right. It it does totally deserve to be a movie, and th- and it's been brought back a ton. I mean, um, uh, Darwin Cook used the used the That's island right. dinosaur island in his uh, New Frontier. That's right. And that GI combat I just mentioned a minute ago from the New Fifty Two that was a War of the Time Forgot so dinosaur island. Then there was a whole mini series uh, in around two thousand eight called the War that Time Forgot. It was a it, like a twelve issue series, and it was it was an interesting idea. It was almost like Crisis on Infinite Earths for old war comics. Because it was like all these different war area type characters to smash together from different books all in one adventure and stuff. So it's it's they've got a lot of legs out of Dinosaur Island, and I'm glad. So great right. stuff. Speaking of moody pieces, here we go. Next one. Uh, now this is our first one that is not U.S. veterans. This is a German officer. So this is interesting. Enemy Ace. Uh, the story is called The Bull. It's 23 pages and is written by Robert Kaniger again, art by Joe Kubert, reprinted from Star Spangled War Stories number 141, 1968. And I am taking the recap from Mike's Amazing World of Comics because he did a really good job here, so forgive me, Mike. Uh, now, if you're unfamiliar with the enemy ace, he is a German flying ace from World War One, and his name is Hans von Hammer, and he's known to the world as the Hammer of Hell. Now... As a German pilot, you know, as, as an American reader might come in, you might expect him to be the antagonist or the bad guy. But no, he's the protagonist of the stories. But he is a warrior of honor, and he fights by a very strict code of ethics. And so that's what really carries him through and makes him an interesting, compelling character. All right, so following the escape from the Hangman's Chateau in France, the enemy ace returns to his flight group where holding a funeral. There we meet Ernst who's the brother of a dead pilot named Carl. And he tells the enemy ace that Carl was killed by his own wingman, a man who goes by the bull. Now, during a patrol, the bull left his wingman to shoot down an unarmed plane. He continued to follow and shoot the plane all the way to the ground, completely abandoning his wingman. While this happened, Carl was attacked by superior numbers and shot down. And in his final moments, Carl turned his plane against his enemies and crashed into him. 
Now, enemy ace leaves the funeral to go confront the bull because he's furious. You don't leave your wingman. So he finds the bull in a bar celebrating what he calls his victory and causing trouble. When enemy ace arrives, the bull attacks him, and enemy ace wins the fight and orders the bull to respect the rules of combat. Instead, the bull challenges enemy ace to a duel. So the next morning, the two men prepare to fire pistols in a duel. Uh, now, Ernst, again, Carl's brother, Ernst demands a chance to avenge his brother. So he faces the bull first, and they're there to fire at the count of ten. But the bull ignores the rules and shoots at the count of nine, and Ernst is killed. It's awful. And horribly angered, the enemy ace attacks the bull and pushes him into the spinning propeller of his plane, sort of like that scene in Raiders of Lost Ark, killing the bull instantly. And then we get one final page of the um, enemy ace flying off in his, uh, I always want to call it a sop with camel, but that's not right, flying off in his uh, plane and basically thinking, you know, uh, moments later I was aloft. The guilty one had paid the penalty, but in reality, weren't we all guilty? So there we go. Now it's Cubert. I know you love Cubert. So what'd you think of this story, buddy? I I read this one before. I don't remember oh. where. I can't. I don't think it was in a treasury, and it certainly wasn't in the original comic because this is from 1968, I believe. So uh, Star Spangled War stories, mm-hmm. and so I. But I know I read it because I could have distinct- been reprinted in one of those hundred-page giants or something. I'm sure. It must have been because I distinctly remember the full-page shot. The 74 where the, the guy's standing there and he's flexing his fist and he's like, I will tear you apart. <laughs> and this is something um, – there's something about Joe's style here that – and I mentioned this on a upcoming episode of Treasury Cast where uh, me and Brian Heiler talk about a Joe Kubert um, artwork story, a drawn story, where Joe had this style where it was gritty but also cartoony and he's kind of pushing it to the limits of what you can accept because okay. this is meant to be realistic but like – the, this this guy is so huge. He's like a the gorilla. Yeah. And his head is like the size of his – like his thigh is bigger than his head. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, that, I don't know if that totally works, but then like it kind of does. And then on the very first page of the story, when the one guy is talking to the MEAs and like his face is like – the way uh, Joe draws his face so elongated, like the guy's nose and mouth are practically hanging off of his skull. Right. So it's like this weird cartoony thing, but yet it's gritty. I I mean I like it a lot, but it's it's unusual. It's almost surrealistic in its own – kind of bizarre way because it's the way Joe handles it. Um, but I don't know. I really do like it. The The scene of Enemy Ace fighting the guy is fantastic because, of course, Enemy Ace is like half the guy's size. So that's mm-hmm. And he uses that to his advantage. The whole countdown, the whole feeling of the high noon thing, the oh. four, five, is great when he shoots the guy. And then, of course, the, as you mentioned, the N-word that gets thrown into the... Uh, Propeller is terrific. So yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really terrific story. I mean, I'm repeating myself. I think all these stories are are great. Um, but yeah, this, this this is a solid collection of, of <laughs> stories. I've I have nothing negative about to say about any of these really. Well, the interesting thing here is just stepping back for a second. Having a story about enemy ace, I mean, having an ongoing feature really about enemy ace is surprising in that in a culture where. You know, America's known for its military force and its might and being right and all this. To have an ongoing story about a German and him being the protagonist, you know, in World War One is sort of an interesting thing and sort of daring to even do, I would say. And yet it works because the character is so compelling. You know, he's he's pa- he's patriotic is, is why you stand by and, and you're okay with the characters because his patriotism. He believes in what he's doing. He believes in his code of ethics. So speaking to the cartoony stuff, I didn't really notice the cartoony stuff you talked about, but now I absolutely do. Like when you said that guy's face looks like it's sort of fall, sliding off his face. Well, he's crying. So the, right. the that caricature really works. And then the beef the beef 
beefy bull guy uh, works because, again, it's just showing his massive size. So I see the cartoonist you're talking about, and it's even more so if you go to page uh, 64, 65. It's a two-page spread, and it shows the, the biplanes fighting and, and uh, enemy aces getting up to speed in the story. And you see the bull's face. I mean, he looks like, I don't know, Snidely Whiplash or something? Yes, I he mean, does. Yes, yes. And then uh, there's another one here, too. Where was it? Forgive me. Well, I flipped I love, well, I love on the uh, I love on the very next page where it's the – a bunch of shots of the bull all in a row. Oh, that's, that's the page I'm looking laughing. for. Oh, page 66, yeah. Yeah. And, and each expression is a little different. It's laughing and his head is yep. turned a little bit in each one. That's the other one I was looking for, actually. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's very cartoony there. And it's it's very creepy, though, too, because he's laughing as he's just – he's already defeated this pilot, right? The, the whole idea of combat is you shoot the pilot down, but you let them go down on their own terms, whether it's crash or they pull out of the dive or whatever. It's That's the code, the proper way of doing this. But the bull is chasing the guy to the ground and shooting him the whole way down, even though he's already defeated him, which is horrible. It's, it's you know I don't know if it's a war crime at this point back then, but it's definitely you know, beyond the rules of fair combat because that's, again, what enemy aces all about is, is being fair. Um, I love the biplane action. I talked a little bit earlier about biplanes, the bygone era of that, so I really enjoyed that. In fact, in fact, the fist fight in the bar between the bull and enemy ace, to me, is like, it's not that it wasn't interesting, but that's like the part I'm just, I zip through that to get, because I want more biplane action is what I really want. So um, I, I love the story. I love the enemy ace. It, it, you should, again, the showcase is great. The stories in there and his connection with this wolf that's out in the woods and his, his again, the code of ethics. I mean, he is a really deep, interesting character. So highly, highly recommend any enemy ace story if you get a chance to read them. So good. I do love the uh, the shot of the bull punching through a chair. That's really fun. <laughs> He's like, try this chair instead, Bull, and his whole fist just goes right through the chair. Right, That's right. <laughs> so even though I said the fight wasn't my favorite part, that is pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you that. All right. Um, oh, you know, actually, page 71, too. When the planes are uh, – when Carl, uh, the brother who, uh, who died, takes his plane up and goes to attack the other plane. He already knows he's dying, and he's, he's dying because his wingman's not there. The bull has gone off, and he, he, he finds a way to tilt his plane back up and goes into the enemy patrols and smashes into them, and you see a shot of all these planes colliding and explosions, and the people in the barrage balloons are watching all this happen. I mean, that's just a great shot on page 71, just really powerful. You can feel the explosion, the heat coming off of the wing shredding. Oh, really good stuff. All right, I, like, I'll, I'm doing what you did now. I'm just throwing superlatives at this thing. So, all right, we need to move on. Yep. All right. Well, uh, if we're well, if we're looking to knock something, we're not going to find something because I like this next story too, yep. <laughs> uh, which is The Unknown Soldier, A Sense of Obligation, written by David Michelini and art by uh, Jerry Tallock, reprinted from Star Spangled War Stories number 184, which is 1975, which, by the way, became The Unknown Soldier. Uh, mm-hmm. that, they changed that to book too. So it was a, our army of war became Sergeant Rock, Star Spangled War Stories became Unknown Soldier. So in this one, the Unknown Soldier is given a new secret mission to infiltrate a commando training center whose mission, the Americans believe, is to take over the French city of Toulon, which Hitler previously promised would stay in Vichy hands. The soldier dons a mask and the clothes of a Nazi corporal named Greff. There he meets and makes friends with a fellow soldier named Heinrich Staub. Soon, the U.S. learns that Staub is not what he expected. He says um, he says he hates the Nazis, but dons their uniform because he is a proud German and wants to serve his country, even if he does not agree with them. He sees it as his duty. 
During a raid on the very resistant HQ the soldier came from, an explosion rips the unknown soldier's mask off. Stubb finds him, but instead of ratting him out, he returns the mask and says, We all have our scars. Yours are just a little deeper. Later, the unknown soldier sabotages the Nazis' plan to take over the port at Toulon. Staub is wounded and finally sees his friend Greff is a spy. Using his last few breaths, he points his weapon at the unknown soldier. The unknown soldier begs him not to force his hand, but Staub will not relent. When he hears Staub's rifle click into place, the unknown soldier turns around and shoots Staub to death. A member of the resistance pulls him away, and the unknown soldier agrees, ruefully, that there are more battles to fight, no matter what the cost. It is his duty. So that is a sense of obligation. Shag, what did you think of this? I really enjoyed this story quite a bit. I must not have read very much Unknown Soldier, at least classic Unknown Soldier. I'd, I'd done some of the more recent stuff, like I said, the New 52 book. But I don't remember reading really any classic stuff. And this story is the... Um, I guess in the sense of this is what published in 1980. This is the quote unquote most recent story because you know, it was published in 1975. Everything was before 1975. It really has like a 1980s vibe to it, though. The panel design, the illustrations, the the story where you, there's not so much a bad guy in the story is there's an antagonist who you relate to. You know, the 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 the, the antagonist in the story is this other German soldier who you actually feel bad for. You understand his position. You know what what happened with his family. He hates the Nazis, but he's also a German and he's proud. So he's in the he's fighting the war, even though he doesn't really like the Nazi Party itself. So it really, really felt like something. I, if, if someone told me this book was like from 1983, 84, I would have believed him. And yet it's from nine years before that. So I I really enjoy the heck out of this thing. Yeah, I did too. Um, I haven't read a lot of Unknown Soldier myself. I, I did read it. I did read the last issue. I remember getting that one. I think I saw it on the newsstand. And The Unknown Soldier uh, is uh, probably in the annals of DC alongside, I would say, the Vigilante and like the Doom Patrol to where the main character of your book dies in the final mm. issue of their title. Okay. <laughs> I think they finally just killed The Unknown Soldier off. No. Spoiler alert, everybody. Thanks, um, Rob. Yeah. No, it, it's a good story. I, You know, I always have a little bit of a problem with the whole, well, I don't agree with the Nazis, but I, it's my duty. Mm, okay, all right. Um, but but they make Staub uh, enough of a, of a, as you say, sympathetic uh, antagonist, and, and that the fact that, and especially when he sees the unknown soldier and he realizes that his face is all scarred up and he figures, you know, you, you figure, Oh, the jig is up. And then he says, no, you're, you're hiding. You're, you're using this mask to hide yourself from the world. And you know, who am I to, to, to pass judgment on that? So yeah, that's a nice thing. And then the ending is, is terrific because it's this, you know, Stahl knows what he's doing. You know, they have the thing where they say it's like um, suicide by cop. Yeah. Well, this is like suicide by the unknown soldier. Stahl is deeply wounded, gravely wounded. He knows that if he tries to shoot the unknown soldier, the unknown soldier is going to shoot him first. But he does it anyway because he knows he's basically, again, he has no no future anymore. So it's a a very grim ending, um, but it's fully got really great, high adventure. Um, I'm not huge on Jerry Tallock's work and I think um, it's okay Uh, and I think at the digest size it does him no favors because he has a lot of like detail and and there were some panels where I literally just know what I was looking at I'm like wait I'm just trying to make out the figures and stuff but of course he didn't draw he drew it to be a regular comic book so he didn't know they were going to reprint it as a digest so um, but uh, otherwise I I like to I I like to just find it's probably my I don't want to say it's my least favorite but it's 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 probably my least favorite, but I still liked it. I yeah, I, I can't assign anything a least favorite because there's nothing in here I dislike. So I don't want to uh, 
there may be ones that are above it, but I'm not going to say it's at the bottom, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like his art. I thought his art was really good. I mean, I'm looking at the detail work and the characters and the designs and the uniforms, and you're right. It's, it is a little rough going at the digest size, but if I just, you know, even though it's like page 92 in the middle panel where it really horrifying bit where the German soldiers come in, unknown soldiers part of the group, and they just murder everyone in the resistance group yeah. that the unknown soldier's working with. And he has to, yeah. because he's undercover, he has to stand there while his own friends are being murdered, which is horrible. Right. But the you know, from an illustration perspective, those faces look great, the body language, everyone running, the guy, you know, in the orange jacket and the green neckerchief and his, you know, crazy Peter Capaldi hair. I mean, it just <laughs> looks really, really exceptionally well done. So I like the art. And and also on page 93, when the unknown soldier gets caught in the explosion and his mask comes off, he just looks freaking creepy. You know, like a skull head. It just looks so – it's like if they could have made Mr. Bones this disturbing looking, he would have been a lot more just you know freaky in, over the years. But um, no, I, I, I actually really like the art. Like I said, I, if someone told me this was a comic from 83, 84, I totally would have believed it. It, it, it seems ahead of, the, ahead of its time to me. Part of that may be the, the Michelini script because he really was exceptional. And uh, maybe I just like Jerry Talek better than you because I have Maybe better so. taste. So. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, you got to go there. That's fine. Yeah, David Michelini's terrific writer. No doubt about that. Yeah. So, well, I would say this whole digest is a complete win all the way around. The, the last page inside, uh, in, you know, follow the adventures of DC sensational combat superstars every month in their own blockbuster books. So you get GI Combat. Uh, you get Weird War Tales, you get The Unknown Soldier, and you get Sergeant Rock. So, um, let's see, Sergeant Rock was on issue 350, Unknown Soldier was 249, Weird War Tales was 97, and G.I. Combat was on issue 22. But, I mean, four monthly war titles. That's crazy. We couldn't even fathom that in today's comic book market. No way. I am curious as to how well these sold. We talked about this in the last episode, which we did just like three weeks ago, mm-hmm. about like what an uncommercial idea Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love was right. as a digest. And I, you know, the, the, the war comics were still chugging along, but they were definitely had seen better days in terms of their sales figures. So I kind of wonder how well these sold. They did a lot of them. Sergeant Rock got a lot of digests, so they must have sold somewhat decently or they would have they would not have kept doing them. But I'm just sort of curious as to where. And, like, I think I had read that the war comics sold to a slightly different audience, slightly older yeah. audience. So did, like, did these digests get to those people? Or did, I don't know. You know, I mean, certainly as a kid, I would not have bought this one because I, I kind of avoided war comics for the most part when I was very young. Um, but I don't know. Like I said, I, I'm sure the sales figures exist somewhere in a back in a filing cabinet somewhere in DC Comics offices now in California. <laughs> I would love to know how these things sold. Well, you know, when we did that episode of Who's That about Captain Fear, we actually had this conversation where we talked about how the war comics because you you were reading letter you were reading the letters pages basically right, of the Captain right. Fear books, and you were stumbling across how the the, the the war comics were really were targeted in a lot of ways to a different reader, the older folks, the ones who grew up. You know, during these wars, the ones who knew the guns, who knew the types of tanks and things like that, and they would write in letters saying, no, you got that type of weapon wrong or the, or the yep, millimeter yep. of the shell wrong and stuff like yep. that. So they really weren't the typical comic reader. And if you think about these digests, these things were in grocery stores. 
right? These things were out there in the wild where, you know, where Superman might not have been. So they may have done quite well in the digest format because you've got those other people out there that are picking them up going, oh, yeah, you know, my, my uncle was in the war or, you know, I stayed up on, you know, what was going on in World War II. I read up on that stuff, so I'll read this. So I, it could have very well been a great format for it because you're, you're right. Sergeant Rock did quite a few of them, and they're not going to keep doing it if it wasn't making money. Maybe so. I also, I like the idea of the very literate, very... Uh, sort of, I, I would get the sense sort of gentle Karen Berger putting together a collection of these <laughs> blood-soaked, sweaty stories of men shooting each other. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm telling you, though, I mean, there's, there's six fantastic stories, though. So maybe, maybe this digest right here is what guided her to fantastic art and writers, which eventually led her to Vertigo. That could be it. I, I think this digest right here is what did it. Sure, let's say that. <laughs> I just did, <laughs> twice. So, all right, well, I, I think this was great. I am so thankful that Luke Giaconetti started talking about uh, Sergeant Rock Digest because it made me want to pick this one up and read it. I mean, I, we were in the middle of Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love, the middle of the prep, and I reached out to Rob. Like, I, had, I was already done with Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love mentally. I was, like, checked out and ready for Sergeant Rock. And he's like, what? what are we, we're doing this other one? For? And so – but uh, I, I'm excited. I I love this, and I would love for us to do some more of these another you know, down the line. There I said there are other there are other War Comics collection digests to do. Yep. All right. So we'll put those on the dockets. Looking forward to it. Well, right now I think we're going to take a podcast promo break, and we come back. We are going to do your listener feedback from the last episode, which was just a few weeks ago, on Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love. Fifty years ago, Southeast Asia became a home away from home for two million Americans as they fought on the biggest, the longest, and most controversial conflict their nation had known since the war between the states. Old enough to kill, but too young to vote. This is their story. Stan Lee presents The Nam. Join me, Tom Panneries, as I bring you an issue-by-issue look at The Nam, the Marvel Comics series that documented the lives of troops in the Vietnam War. Each episode covers one issue of the comic, as well as the history of the war, and I also take the occasional look at movies, music, television, novels, and other culture of the Vietnam War. New episodes drop every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. Hey folks, this is Jared Albrecht, a.k.a. The Yard Sale Artist and semi-regular co-host of the Longbox Crusade podcast with Pat Sampson. Pat came to me recently with a fantastic idea on how we might get the podcast community involved in taking some action to do some good. He called this idea Comics for Courage. Comics for Courage is a concept that came to Pat after I told him the fantastic true story of when I was stationed in Iraq during my military service. While there, I received a huge care package of comic books from the awesome folks over at Wizard and Toy Fair magazines. We had so many comics, we didn't know what to do with them all. Seriously, it was over 100 pounds of comics. So me and a couple of buddies took the bounty of comics we had down to the give-and-take library we'd set up in our headquarters building. And you know what? Within 24 hours, all the comics were gone. The bottom line here is that throughout history, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, one thing remains a constant. Soldiers love comics. It's quick, 
easy, fun reading that gives the soldier a taste of home and lets him escape into an amazing world of comics, even if it's just for a few minutes. So here's the best part of Comics for Courage. Pat and I aren't asking you to donate one cent of your money to Comics for Courage. What we would love is for you to donate your excess comics. You know those ones that are just kind of laying around. Just drop them into a box or a big envelope and mail them over to supportourtroops.org. Their mailing address is Support Our Troops, 13617 North Florida Avenue, Tampa, Florida, 33613. Now, they will make sure that those comics get distributed to random soldier care packages. And as a person who's been on the receiving end of this, I can tell you it will mean a lot. And if you'd rather donate money than give up a single comic book, trust me, we understand about that. You can donate through their website as well. Again, that's supportourtroops.org. Just remember two things, all right? Two things. One, make sure the comics have good, clean content. No nudity or adults-only comics, please. Those are the rules for any military member receiving goods downrange. Okay, and number two, this is the fun one. Please take a picture of you with your donation stack and post it on Twitter or Facebook at Longbox Crusade. Or email it to contact at longboxcrusade.com. We'd love to give you an on-air shout-out and post your pick on the longboxcrusade.com website. In summary, Pat and I over at Longbox Crusade Podcast would greatly appreciate you taking this small action to make a difference in the life of someone who is far from home defending our freedoms. Thank you for supporting the Comics for Courage initiative. That website, again, is supportourtroops.org. Please check it out. Throw them some comics, make some soldiers happy. We appreciate it. Thanks again. And we're back, folks. And I am still basking in the yellow tinted glow from the cover of this Sergeant Rock Prize Battle Tales. I just it, it warms me uh, all the way to my core. So now, Rob, if the folks at home want to see some of the fantastic art we've been bragging about all uh, show here, where should they come to find that? Go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and you will see the accompanying gallery post for this episode. And we'll have a bunch of really great images from this comic. And literally every image from this comic is great. So I mean that literally. You know where else they could go? They could just go over to Sean Meyer's house and rifle through his Digest collection. Because I'm sure he's probably got this issue on the shelves, don't you think? They could. He's out a lot. He travels a lot. He goes to a lot of Disneyland a lot. He goes to a lot of Kylie Minogue concerts. So odds are he's not even home. So you could... You might, be, you might be able to get some fun stuff. Easy pickings. In fact, there's some. I know there's some really good stuff there because Sean just recently was uh, won one of the Digest Cast giveaways where we gave away a bunch of Digests. So congratulations to Sean. And you can go steal all those Archie Digests from That's him. That's right. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, he left the first comment from uh, on our website from the last episode, uh, which is Shag Savage Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love. He says, another great episode. The love both of you have for the two sinister house stories reprinted here was more than evident. I agree the artwork on the Toth story is phenomenal, although the Dzunig artwork definitely has more of a creepy gothic look than the beautiful stylized Toth visuals. For those fans who are subscribed to the DC Universe streaming service, you can read both Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love and Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion series right now. DC Special was always the more courageous digest when it came to reprinting non-superhero stories. Of its 24 issues, 11 featured concepts that were not superhero-related. I'm including strange sports stories here, even though it does have one superhero story in that issue. Oh, we covered that one. Uh, sure, Best of DC had some issues with Sugar and Spike, Binky, and Funny Stuff, but excepting Plop, all those are pretty safe choices. I can't wait to find out what next two episodes 
issues you two will be covering. I'm guessing December will be best of DC numbers 22 and or 58. Oh, Sean, you know me too well. Uh-huh. It's funny. He's been messing with me for the last couple of weeks. Like every time he leaves a comment on something, he like says, can't wait for you to cover. And then he just makes up two crazy digests and just having fun. Now, by the way, he mentioned something I wanted to mention. I was shopping in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. They had some great comic book stores there, by the way. And I found in there, in their cheap section, two old DC digests, which I bought that I didn't own. They're both blue ribbon digest and they are sugar and spike Rob, I have sugar and spike digests. And uh, they had a lot of digests. 47 and 65, so cool. I was very excited to find those things. Google, go plicks them. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, our next comment comes from Chris Franklin from the FW Podcast Network. Uh, he's got his own shows such as Supermates, what he does with his wife, Superman Movie Minute, which he does with some other bald guy, and several other net- shows on the network. And Chris writes, wow, the art in those stories is just gorgeous. But of course it is. I would have never bought this off the stands, as Rob pointed out. In fact, I may have passed this one up. And he says, one thing I didn't really put into words before is that maybe DC was just trying to hang on to gothic romance, uh, I'm sorry, hang, uh, hang with the gothic romance novels. There was a paperback spinner rack right next to the magazine rack at the drugstore where I bought most my comics. The rack was full of gothic romances. So maybe DC thought that there might be a market in this similarly sized format. You know, that's a very good observation. I hadn't even thought about that. It makes perfect sense, though. Chris goes on to say Toth's DC work was spotty during this period, but he did draw a lot of Golden Age material for DC, including Green Lantern and the JSA, and Western features like Johnny Thunder. I know you guys know this, just pointing it out to folks who may not be familiar with his earlier works. Rob, there are Alex Toth Johnny Thunder Western stories out there for us to read? Yes, there are. We got to get to those. <laughs> oh my gosh. Rob and I fell head over heels for Johnny Thunder in, um, it was what DC Comics Presents Whatever Happened to. Yes. Uh, yep. that, that and the Who's Who entries for mm-hmm. Johnny Thunder the Cowboy were just amazing. And now that I know that Alex Toth was involved, oh my gosh. Yeah, got we, to get we, our hands because, Yeah, we got to check those out. That sounds, those sound really terrific. Uh, another comment is from Martin Gray, the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. He says, another hugely enjoyable show. Thanks, chaps. I'm not sure I've ever read The Bride of the Falcon Chiller or think I have, having read it Jacques' sequential crush blog. Either way, I love it. I wouldn't call the art spotty so much as a slightly different toth, more romantic. The vibe reminds me of the DC romance work of better known as a colorist illustrator Liz Barub. And Kathy makes me think of the witching hours Cynthia. She was designed by Toth, Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah, she does look a lot like that character. I never made that. I didn't make that connection, but you're right, Martin. Uh, we got the next comment is from Ed Edo Bosnar. He says, glad both of you like these stories so much as I thoroughly agree that they are quite excellent. And my only criticism of them echoes something you mentioned, i.e. the 100% mortality rate for poor house pets. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I found particularly interesting about the first story, To Wed the Devil, is that Sarah and her family are Jewish, which seems to me kind of unusual for the main characters in romance comics or really romance stories in general. I also did not know that her rabbi uncle and his priest buddy made appearances in other comics. Very interesting. Anyway, hoping that Chag's optimistic announcement of back-to-back Digest cast in November and December comes true. There you go. Well, we're halfway there. So we're halfway well, there, Edo. Yeah, we, we've done one. I guess I shouldn't get too far out of myself, should I? <laughs> then we heard from Gothos Mansion. Uh, he says, I really appreciate you guys covering something out of the mainstream, like this digest. I picked up the four issues of Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love and Secrets of Sinister House in pretty cheap lots on eBay. If memory serves, and it rarely does these days, the two Sinister House issues featured in the digest were better than the four issues of Dark Mansions. 
Hmm. All right. Well, with them all being in the DC app, I should go out there and find out. I, I don't know if they're still in the DC app because they do take stuff off from time to time, but I should go check that out. Then we heard from Luke Giaconetti from the Two True Freaks Net- Podcast Network and shows such as Earth Destruction Directed Podcast and the man who inspired this Sergeant Rock Prize Battle Tales episode. Uh, he writes, Sinister House of Secret Love became Secrets of Sinister House and Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love became Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion. <laughs> they said the same four words and they just moved them around right exactly i guess they thought maybe you know the f is earlier in the alphabet i don't know um no it's not actually f is later than dark wasn't it uh, anyway sinister house this this i found this fascinating i didn't know this sinister house was hosted by eve who was cain and abel's cousin and dark mansion was hosted by charity now both of these characters would eventually become part of the DC universe in the 1990s, with Eve in the Vertigo Sandman title and Charity in the Jack Knight Starman book. What the what? I had no idea. I always knew the character of Charity was sort of. I always, I just thought she was a knockoff of like Madame Xanadu. It's like okay, she's got a little bit of fortune telling kind of thing. Okay, I didn't realize she was a horror host comic t- uh, thing. That's so amazingly cool. Yeah, I'm blown away by that. That's cool. They really, they said DC really did need to like eventually just fold all these titles into one book and call it like Dark House of Secret Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion Love or something. <laughs> it's just everything and, and all mystery. In, and mystery. Yeah, just pile everything up into one giant logo that takes up half the cover. <laughs> I, I, being a Starman fan, and I don't know if Chris and Cindy knew that about Charity. So I'm real curious to hear if they knew that about Charity because she was a really interesting character in the Starman book. And just, I'm again, mind is blown by that observation. Never throw anything away, guys. When you have DC, you've got 80 years of comics to pull from. So why not? And James Robinson was very good at it. Back he then. Sure was. Um, we got a comment from Steve Gurney, and he says another great episode of Digest Cast. I never got this one, so I can't speak about the content. But with Toth and Dzunaga art, you can't go wrong. Whether it was the spotty newsstand district of the day or the me of the early 80s not wanting to read girl comics i can't remember why i didn't get this one <laughs> i don't want to get cooties well steve the real test will be you didn't want to buy girl comics did you buy boy war comics so we'll have to find out if you have the digest from today uh, then we heard again from Luke Giaconetti. He goes, great episode, guys. I first discovered the DC Gothic romance books around 2007 or so, and it was first, um, and I was first really learning about DC's history of genre books. I had the showcase of Secrets of Sinister House, and I can confirm that these stories look suitably moody and creepy in black and white. And noteworthy to me is the length. I don't believe any of DC's genre books had features that were 32 pages long at this point, whether horror, mystery, romance, or war, that helps make these comics unique and memorable. Hmm. I didn't think about the page count. Yeah, because I mean, there was only three stories in that digest. So yeah, they really had a lot of chance uh, to flesh out that universe and flesh out the story and really give the gothic setting. So yeah, good observation, Luke. All right, cool. Uh, we got a comment from Hurricane Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Baileytude Podcast Network. And he says, part of my love for DC Comics comes from the fact that it once pushed all of the genres instead of focusing just on superheroes. Don't get me wrong, superheroes are my bread and butter, but looking back and reading stories from their Western and science fiction and horror and war books is always a joy. They don't all lend themselves to binge reading. The romance stories are best read in small doses, but the fact that DC not only put out stories in those genres, but managed to cultivate ongoing characters is something I will always respect. The stories you discussed during this episode sounded like a lot of fun. I recently sold my copy of this digest. But I'm sure I can find a way to read them for myself. Shag, is that the one you bought? 
No, no, no. In fact, I bought mine for the absorbent, exorbitant amount of money of $25, which was crazy. Some of the most amount of money I've ever spent on a comic. And Bailey immediately goes, oh, I got mine for five. So, you know, I don't know how much he sold it for. I certainly hope he got the, you know, whatever percentage increase profit he got at selling at 25 I hope he did. So, <sighs> although I'm mad at him, so maybe I'd be happy if he got it sold it for a quarter. I don't know. So, anyway, then we're from our good friend, Dr. Ange, from the Supergirl blog comic box commentary plus the legion super bloggers and in fact past guest of this very show digest cast dr ange says another great show gents i suppose i would have skipped this one as a kid although i love the dc horror anthology books but now i feel like i should be scouring cons for it dude you totally totally should it's so good and both of them you know both the stories we covered are just exceptional. I, I found myself sort of really dwelling. Um, this is me, by the way, not Ange. I found myself really dwelling on that Falcon story. Actually, both of them, really. Even the, the first one, too, with the, um, you know, the, the, the I, can't, I can't remember the character's name, but the, the woman who uh, had to go off to the Gothic mansion and the Count and all that stuff. Uh, or Baron, I should say. Those are, both were really good. Wow. Okay. Sorry. Just waxing a, a, a happiness. So uh, Jimmy McGlinchey then wrote in. He said, great podcast, but you missed a little cross-promoting in that Lonely Hearts Romance Comics crew covered the Bride of the Falcon story in their podcast. They even did a Romance Comics theater with it. And he gives the link. Hopefully Siskoid and company are not too peeved with the lack of mention in the podcast. Well, Jimmy... Hmm, let me put it this way. Within about 15 minutes of the episode dropping, Rob and I got a message from Cisco about what? No mention of Lonely Hearts, uh, you know, romance comic theater that they did on this very issue. We're like, oops, sorry. And then we tried to, like, you know, backpedal and go, well, you know, that was before you were part of the network. Oh, oh, no, no, no. In fact, that episode of Lonely Hearts was one of the first ones ever released when the Firewater Podcast was a network. So, yeah, a lot of egg on our face. I mean, really, I blame Rob. It's kind of his fault. But, uh, yeah, it was it was a little embarrassing. So, yes, please, please go check out Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast. Uh, and I just got the name wrong. But, anyway, it's episode eight. Check that out. They did a, a theater on the Falcon story, and it's fantastic. You should definitely check that out. Yeah, like Batman, we pulled a boner. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, let's see. So, I, again, I paid $25 for this thing, right? Then, thankfully, the Twitters came to my rescue and made me feel better, folks. Lucien Dessar steps in and goes, I couldn't get the Digest for under $30. So he goes, I'm listening to it in the blind, which means he hasn't even got it. He says the cheapest he could find was eBay. It was $30, and he'd been outbid on it twice. So, And he said my purchase should be tax deductible. I think he's right. So, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And we have to, you have to, we send in our receipts to our fire and water accountant at the end of every year. So, right. <laughs> to do that. Um, we got a comment from Lee Asif, who actually just appeared on Pod Dylan. Thanks, Lee. Hey. And he says, as I should mention, I too paid $25 for my copy of this as well via Amazon and worth every penny. I feel so much better. Like, those comments help me sleep at night. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> uh, then we heard from Ted Kilvington, who was our other winner of a Digest Cast prize pack, by the way. So he got a big box full of Digests. And Ted writes, best episode ever. Now, to be fair, I think Ted might have been a little biased because that's the episode where we announced he was a winner. <laughs> uh, Clinton Robinson from the Coffee and Comics podcast uh, quotes back to me, says, Clinton's right. Wise words from Rob Kelly in there. I don't remember what I said. I, I, that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> Not at all. No. Unless Clinton was taking a dig at me, which is quite possible. Maybe so. so. I don't know, or maybe I was literally referring to his right. 
like his the right side of his face or something. I don't know. I don't remember. Maybe you meant President Clinton. I don't Could know. Be, maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to go back and listen. Those, are, those shows are in the past. I don't listen to those things. Uh, oh Terry, Terry, O'Malley, <laughs> Terry O'Malley comments. He says, just in time for my drive home tonight. I, You know what I mean? When the first time I read that comment, I pictured Terry with the digest trying to read it while he's driving. Oh, no. Not listening, which is not smart because it's very hard to read. Very tiny type. And I was like, oh, he's meant listening to the show, of course. Now, I always talk about how we do the image galleries, and so if you can't find the comic, you can look there. But, folks, those are not for you to look on your phone while you're driving, just being perfectly clear. So not endorsing that. Yeah. Uh, then we heard from Scott Rowland. He says, fun episode. These gothic romances were really quite good. And who can argue with Toth? Yeah. Uh, the answer, Scott, is no one. Yeah. So, um uh, you know, we meant to do this earlier, folks, so now, unfortunately, we've got to end the episode on a little bit of a down note. Um, we've got some news that we should have covered earlier, don't you think? So, and I, yeah, I don't have the article in front of me, but, uh, you know, sometimes in the world of podcasting, you, you do something and you create a movement. And we did that with the creation of the Digest Cast uh, podcast. Within a month or two, Marvel announced it was going to be doing Digest in grocery stores again. They had a deal with Archie, which was amazing, and we totally took credit for that. Well, uh, eight Digests later, uh, the announcement came out uh, last month in October that they will be no more Marvel Digests in the grocery stores. Um, very disappointing. The It's just subject to the rumor mill right now. We don't really know any facts. I think this came from Bleeding Cool, if I remember right. But the rumor is that it's actually Archie that has pulled the plug on that. So I, I don't know all the – we don't know the details. We don't know the facts. But from what we understand is issue number eight, which was the Venom issue, will be the last one. There were two more that were solicited, and it's a real bummer we're not getting them because they looked good too. So uh, we, as of right now, I think we issue, finished through issue five, so we have three more to do. So rather than shotgunning those in one one uh, episode, maybe, Rob, we'll just spread those out a bit, and we'll still cover them. What do you think? Yeah, maybe so. It makes me sad. I mean, I can't be terribly surprised because I we, we talked about on the show how hard they were to find. I mean, mm-hmm. I had to drive well, around a lot. To get these things, and uh, I mean, when I did find them, uh, like I found them rarely at Target, and when they did, they were like almost never in the same location more than once. Like, and they were, uh, I found one in a um, in one Target, and like the cover was ripped. So I mean, mm. they didn't make it. You know, they really didn't make it. It kind of sounds similar to how um, it sounds like uh, Walmart is displaying those hundred pages thing, where it's. It's very catch as catch can, and it, you know you, you got to meet the audience halfway. You got to have them out there where people can find them. Well, in my case, I, I didn't have that problem with it. I, there was one digest. I had trouble finding the Thor digest, but other than the Thor digest, they were plentiful in my area. Area, all the grocery stores had them. They were right there at the checkout counter. They were always there. Uh, that sometimes they'd sell out, which is a good thing. But I mean, it, for the most part, though, they were always available. So I didn't have a problem finding them here at all. So I, I did not have that problem with the Marvel ones. Now the DC ones, you're right. It, it's just a disaster. The way, at least every Walmart I've been in, it's a complete disaster the way they're marketing those. I can only imagine it's a short period of time before DC is just going to pull the plug on it because it just looks like a failed experiment. But um, yeah, this really bums me out because I was really enjoying the heck out of these things, you know. So oh well, maybe. Uh, now, part, well, I was just going to say one last thing is my gut tells me it's probably not a sales thing because, again, they seem to be moving well in my area. My gut tells me, you know what, Archie, when they started doing these digests, Archie was Archie. Well, then Riverdale comes along, and they're making a ton of money off this show, 
right? And maybe they've got other ways they want to make. You know, they have different thresholds on their money makers now. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Maybe they look at that and they say, "Why are we wasting valuable rack space on Marvel, which doesn't sell as well as our Archie Digest?" Yeah, who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Well, so that's the downbeat news. But we've got some good news about the next episode. Uh, yeah, the next episode uh, we're going to do it for Christmas, and it's my pick. It's my turn this time. So uh, again, we're going to be doing it for the Christmas season. So I am picking best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest number fifty-eight, the Super Juniors. Holiday special, which features all of our favorite superheroes minus Aquaman as little kids on a big holiday adventure. It is a truly bizarre <laughs> little story to be told. It also features some sugar and spike stories. You know, I'm going to enjoy that. And uh, we can't uh, guarantee it just at this moment because we haven't recorded the show yet. But that episode, when we get to it, might feature one or even multiple Franklins. We don't know. You'll have to tune in and find out. <laughs> We were going to say guest, but apparently that's another word for guest. So I, I, now we'll talk more about it on the episode, I guess. But this will be my first Super Juniors I, of, of anything I've ever read. That was, you know, actually, I guess I should save it for the episode. But save is it for this the, the first? Well, is this the first appearance of the Super Juniors? It is the only appearance of the Super Juniors in a DC comic book. Wow. The Franklins, okay. the Franklins right. are experts in this yeah. weird yes. little corner of DC merchandising, and they will explain right. just what the Super Juniors are all about. I was going to say, save it for the show. Save it for the yeah, show. Yeah. But okay. Wow. All right. I didn't realize this was the only comic book appearance. You know, okay. I've never, I've never read this thing. So we, might want, we might want to talk about the Super Juniors now because I think if we have Chris and Cindy on, we're not going to get a word in edgewise. But that just means we can take the week off, right? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, here you go. Yeah, you guys just record this. <laughs> when you're done with the file, send it to us. Right. Here's the audio. Slap the front on. Slap Luke Dobbs' <laughs> song on there for us, would you? <laughs> All right, folks. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of the Digest Cast. So glad we were able to get this out so quickly and so glad that we're able to take a moment and, again, say thank you to our veterans. I know we actually have some listeners that are veterans themselves. So, again, to all the veterans out there, you have our respect and our appreciation. Thank you so much, and we wish you a happy Veterans Day. Now, Rob, if people want to go out on the web and uh, leave their thoughts on these issues or veterans in general or war comics or whatever, where should they go? Go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. That's right. And leave a comment on our website. And also you can go to iTunes. Leave us an iTunes review. That would be super cool and appreciated. We really, really appreciate that. And then uh, there's something on Twitter that I still don't have the password to. Is that right? Yes, we, there is. The, I'm not giving it to you. It's You're clearly uh, the, not. Yeah, the, He's not kidding. <laughs> DigestCast. Yes, DigestCast has his own Twitter feed. You can just go to DigestCast on Twitter and you'll find us there. Awesome. Now remember, on the social medias, use the hashtag WarComicsMonth. War Comics Month. Uh, so be sure to use that hashtag out there and spread the word. So with that, folks, always remember, big things come in small packages. Our trip to the Eiffel Tower may have to wait, Sergeant Rock. Any chance of calling in an airstrike? Negative, Batman. But we're not going to need it. The sweetest fighting machine in this man's army. G.I. Robot. <laughs> 